everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pilgrim Devotion. I'm your host, Pastor Michael Howard, the senior pastor of Seaford Baptist Church, and this is a podcast for anyone inside or outside of Seaford Baptist Church who is living the pilgrim life, representing the kingdom of God in the kingdom of man. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to obey than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. That comes from 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23, and it is pertinent to our topic for the podcast today. In this episode, we're going to be talking about pride and humility, and we are going to be talking about how to fight pride and how to pursue humility. So thank you so much for joining us. Glad to have you here. I have my black tea in hand. I've got my notes ready, and it is time to embark upon this. This is what we were going to do last week, but instead we ended up talking about Alistair Begg and the LGBT weddings, which a lot of people put their ears on that. I want to thank you for listening, and if you come back this week, that's great. Uh, I, I think that... That is a subject matter that really draws a lot of people, uh, it draws their interest because I think people recognize the fact that we're all likely, especially like I said, millennials, uh, Gen Zers, we're likely to be invited to an LGBT wedding at some point in our life. We want to know how to respond. Not everyone who I got feedback from about the episode necessarily agreed, and even that made for some good discussion with the folks that I talked with. So I thought that was wonderful, and it's certainly something to continue to think through. But today we turn our attention to pride and humility. There are some verses that we should consider. I read from 1 Samuel 15 to start the podcast, but there's some other uh, passages of the Bible that we should consider when we're talking about pride and humility. One of them comes to us in Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 18, pretty famous passage. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. But haughty eyes, prideful eyes, is what it says there in Proverbs 6, 17. This is something that is an abomination to the Lord. This is something that he hates. Isaiah 2, verse 12, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Isaiah 23, verse 9, The Lord of hosts has purposed it, to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. And the Bible says to us multiple times that God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. If there is something that God resists, that God hates, that God has promised to bring low, to bring to dishonor, to bring to defilement, then we should want to know what that thing is and avoid it. And pride is... Uh, certainly that thing. Pride is a unique sin. In a Puritan theology doctrine for life by Joel Beakey and Mark Jones, they talk about how pride is unique because it doesn't just turn us away from God. It actually challenges God directly. Okay, it, It's not just an idol that we turn away from God and we go and we bow down to it, but it is us walking up to God and saying, give me the throne. 
I'm going to exalt myself to the point where I get to decide what is right in my own eyes, where I get to decide what I am entitled to, where I get to decide what my reaction to things are going to be. I get to decide what is right in terms of the boundaries of belief and behavior. I get to decide. You step down. I get to decide. I'm the one who is the arbiter of truth here. That's really what pride ultimately does. And certainly pride was the sin of our first parents in the garden, was it not? I mean, you have Adam and Eve in the garden. They've been told. They've, they've got, they've got their, their run of the garden here. I think it's something that people often miss is that God generously gave them the garden to enjoy took a sip of the tea. When you have nobody like co-hosting with you, when you have no interview, you have to break for a second to sip the tea. Um, but God gave them the garden, right, for them to enjoy. There, there, were, there were other trees for them to eat from and that were going to be good for, for food for them, uh, not to mention the tree of life that is there, right? But they eat from the, the tree, the one tree that God says, do not eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from this tree, then you are going to die. And Satan tempts them, deceives Eve. Did God really say? And then Adam and Eve decide, you know what? We want to we wanna eat from this tree. Sa Satan says, he just doesn't want you to be like him. And they decide, yeah, we want to be like him. We, we want this. And so they eat from this tree and they rebel against God directly. Right? Their pride in eating from that tree is a direct challenge to the authority of their maker, as is every prideful sin that is committed since. And so if you really look down at the root of every sin, including the first sin, what you're going to find is pride. So while we might go bow down to an idol in the corner, we're still in our hearts walking up to God's throne and saying, step off, right? I I'm going to take this throne. And that is why pride is so uniquely awful, because it is a direct challenge to the Lord. Pride is complex, Beaky and Mark Jones say, because it takes all sorts of forms. Jonathan Edwards said, it's like peeling layers off of an onion, only to find more underneath, right? When I was in college, I remember being in, I think it was a Zen Buddhism class, it might have just been an Eastern religions class, but I, I believe it was actually specifically a Zen Buddhism class. Because I went to VCU, and at Virginia Commonwealth University, you had, you, if you got a religion degree, you had all sorts of teachers, most of which were not Christians. The ones that were Christians were so theologically liberal that they did not believe in the Bible being like the sole life of, uh, the life and the authority of the church, right? Like they... They certainly didn't believe that the Bible wouldn't fail you. They didn't believe that the Bible was without error. Uh, they didn't believe any of that. And, and so they, they would probably call it like a man-made book that has some of God's fingerprints on it. Then you had, I mean, we had Reformed Jewish uh, professors. We had Zen Buddhist professors. Uh, we had atheist professors. We had all sorts of different professors there at Virginia Commonwealth University. And then there were like two sane, <laughs> biblically orthodox professors. And those of us who were believers in the program took as many of their uh, classes as we possibly could because they were edifying and you would really learn from them. There's a church history, uh, church history professor that was really good as well as a New Testament professor that was really good. But 
I remember taking a class with Daniel Perdue, who was a Zen Buddhist. He was a really nice guy. I, he gave me like advice about, you know, graduation and, and being patient and not trying to rush it. And I, I remember one conversation with him in his office about that. He would always be willing to sit down and talk about Christianity and the difference between his beliefs as a Zen Buddhist and, you know, the beliefs of a, a Protestant Christian. So Daniel Perdue was a really nice guy. He passed away, uh, you know, some years back, but... I remember Professor Purdue saying in class that for a Zen Buddhist, enlightenment is this thing that you're always chasing because you're like, well, man, like once I'm enlightened, once you think I'm enlightened, you think, well, an enlightened person wouldn't say that. So, so then you think, oh, I'm not enlightened and I need to pursue this more. And so it's just kind of like ever going on. And I remember how, thinking how sad that was because as a Christian, I don't think I'm saved. Well, now that I think I'm saved, that means I'm probably not saved. And now I need to go try to be saved again. How, how miserable would that be? Instead, we have the concrete, objective truth of the Word of God, which tells us that we are redeemed if we have repented of sin and put our trust in Jesus Christ, and we do not think that we are believers based on any merit of our own, but based on what Jesus has done, the fixed accomplishment of Jesus Christ for his people. So I just remember thinking how sad that was, but I will say that I can relate it in some ways to the idea of humility, because the second you think... Uh, you know, you peel off the layer of the onion, like Edward said, and you think, well, I'm humble. You think, well, a humble person probably would not proclaim humility for themselves, so there's probably more pride I need to deal with, and you just kind of have to keep pursuing humility, pursuing humility. So pride is complex, and the pursuit of humility is ongoing in our lives. Pride spoils our work, uh, Beaky and Jones says, because, Beaky and Jones say, because We'll try to steal glory from God in our work. Instead of doing all things to the glory of God, we will start doing all things to the glory of ourselves. And I have experienced this certainly in ministry. Uh, Self-congratulations while preaching is something that I have had to battle before. Where it's like, I'll be in the midst of preaching. And I'm just being honest with you here. And, I, and if you think less of me, well... Maybe you need to go deal with your pride. No, I'm joking. But in all seriousness, though, like in the middle of preaching at times, I'll think, boy, I'm really killing it here. And the second I think that, I'll think, oh, you prideful, prideful scoundrel. And I will need to, like in the middle of preaching, kind of repent in my own heart and say, no, no. All right, I've even been like, I, I so part of my editing process, part of my sermonating process, if you will, is once I have my manuscript done, I take it to a room and I preach it. It's like the last thing I do, and then I fix anything that didn't work or if something kind of came out while I was preaching that I didn't expect to, I'll go, oh, that's good, I'll add that in. And it's, it's really the last thing I do. I call it taking the sermon manuscript for a test drive. Sometimes just in, you know, in, in the secret, right, when I'm just alone and I'm doing that, and it's just really an exercise between me and the Lord, taking what he has taught me in my studying and taking everything I've prepped and, and kind of putting that out there in a room alone, I, I will, again, it just start to be like, boy, this is a really good manuscript. This is really going well. And then I'll have to stop. And, and of course, in those situations, you can't do this necessarily when you're in front of people on a platform, but uh, behind a pulpit. But when I'm in those situations, I can stop and actually pray to the Lord and ask him to, to you know, kill my pride, kill my flesh off. Uh, don't let that be a part of what I'm going to do on Sunday morning on the Lord's Day or what I'm going to do at midweek on a Wednesday night with uh, our people as I'm teaching. So, 
And I'll tell you another form of pride I've really had to battle as a pastor is people-pleasing because I struggle with people-pleasing, and people-pleasing is a form of pride. It really is. Because what you do is you end up exalting other people and their opinions for the sake of your own gratification. Like, oh, if I could just get them to give me the pat on the back, well, then I'll, I'll go to bed tonight at peace. Well, our, our peace shouldn't be found in the pat on the back that we get from others. And, and how prideful is it of us to need that in our flesh, to need that for our souls in order to have peace instead of really doing our duty, right? Performing our vocation for the Lord and then letting him bring fruit from that for his own glory. So Matthew Henry, in his book, The Quest for Meekness and the Quietness of Spirit, which by the way, I, I think I have lauded this book on this podcast before. I just want to say it again. There is no book that I've read other than the Bible itself, that while reading it, it did more to change my character. Not that I've arrived, but boy, did it just overhaul me. Uh, I heard Joe Thorne say he reads this book every year. Once a year, he'll read this book. It's not a long book. It's 144 pages, uh, the copy that I have. You can get it on Amazon. It's got kind of like, it's actually got a really terrible cover, the copy that I have. It's like, looks like sand and... I don't even know what it's necessarily supposed to be. I don't know what it has to do with the quest of meekness and the quietness of spirit. But anyways, I love this book. And in it, Matthew Henry says, talking about meekness, we must show this meekness most to those with whom we converse. There are some that, when they are in the company with strangers, appear very mild and good-humored. Their behavior is plausible enough and compliant, but in their families, they are peevish and forward and ill-natured, and those about them scarce know how to speak to them. This shows that the fear of man gives greater check to their passions than the fear of God. Our rule is to be meek toward all, even to the brute creatures over whom we are lords, but we must not be tyrants. A good man is merciful to his beast. Like even down to the way you treat your dog in private says something about your meekness, it says something about your humility. If the only time you really show godliness, if the only time you show a control of the tongue, if the only time you show uh, a, a, a self-control, a tempered spirit, is when you're around other people, but in your house, around your family, and around your dog, around your beast, you're a brute, and you are uh, just flying off the handle and your heart, like the people in your own house don't even know how to talk to you, what that shows is that you just fear man. You don't fear God. And in private, you'll act however you want. But when you're around people, oh, you know, you, you'll be good, right? You'll act Christian so you can get that pat on the back, the pleasing of the flesh. Do you see how prideful people pleasing can be? It's something I've had to battle in my own heart as I have been in ministry. And it's hard because pride is everywhere in our culture, is it not? I mean, we literally have a month called Pride Month where the whole culture is celebrating sinful sexual behavior that is an abomination before the Lord. Right? We, we have, I mean, I got to say, probably the most influential politician of my lifetime. I mean, let's just, I'm going to read some quotes from the guy. <laughs> Right, and you you tell me if you know who this is. I did the biggest deal ever done in the history of our country yesterday in terms of trade, and probably other things too, if you think about it. I'm the best deal maker. I've made the best deals. 
Nobody knows more about trade than me. I will be the greatest jobs president that God ever created. <laughs> Nobody builds walls better than me. I know more about ISIS than the generals do. I'm really good at war. I love war in a certain way. I have millions of followers on Twitter. It's like owning the New York Times without the losses. Okay. The last one is really funny. <laughs> it's a really funny quote. And I'm sorry. Uh, it's like owning the New York Times without the losses is actually a pretty good zinger. But obviously, we know who th this is, right? You know who I'm talking about. This is Donald Trump. I think he's the most influential politician in my lifetime. He's the only politician, I believe, in my lifetime to ever run for office, run for the office of president three separate times, which he's about to do the third time. And I don't know of any president, like the people who love him, love him. Like, I don't know of any politician where it's like the people that are in his camp like they they aren't just like sleeping in tents. They have built homes. <laughs> they have set up shop. They are there. They are entrenched. Say what you will about them and say what you will about that. But the people that love this guy love this guy. Like he is just to me so unique from the other men and women who have been politicians that I've seen in my lifetime. So when you think about this guy, though, like. I wouldn't say humility is what he leads with, right? I wouldn't say humility is a mark of his leadership. I'm the best. I'm the best. What I do is bigger. What I do is better. That—that's his. That's his mantra, right? That's his mo. That this is who. This is who he is. Like this is the way that he talks. There's going to be debates coming up between him and Joe Biden uh, this fall. And we've already seen debates with him and Joe Biden before, and we know how this is going to go. We know that there's going to be a lot of talk like this, right? So pride is everywhere from the top down in our culture. And so it's really easy to just kind of default into that and think there is nothing wrong with it. In fact, a lot of people might not even think about it too much. And yet... We know as Christians, from what the scriptures are saying, that pride is something that God hates, that it, it's compared to divination. And so with that in mind, we have to fight against it. And we should test ourselves. We should really ask ourselves whether or not we are prideful. Uh, in that uh, same book that I mentioned, Puritan Theology, Doctrine for Life by Beakey and Jones, they give four questions that are a bit of a litmus test to whether or not we are prideful. How dependent are we on the praise of others? How badly do you need that pat on the back from other people? Do we care more about a reputation for godliness than godliness itself? That's what I was just talking about from the Matthew Henry book. Like, do you care more about people thinking you're godly, or do you care more about actually being godly? Because I heard Mike McKinley say this in a room full of pastors at a conference that uh, our Pillar Network did last October, and Mike McKinley said, you can have godliness or the appearance of godliness, but you cannot have both. You, you have to pursue one or the other. If you only pursue the appearance of godliness, and you don't really care so much about actually being godly, that shows that you are prideful. It shows that you don't really care what God has to say. You'll really do what you want. You'll only be good enough to get the nod from others that, yeah, 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 he's a pious guy, right? He, that's a pious woman. What gifts and rewards from others 
or sorry, what do gifts and rewards from others say to us about our ministry? Meaning, is if you were to never get a gift or a reward in the ministry that you do, so if you're in the local church, just a lay leader in the local church, nobody ever pats you on the back for that. You, you sweep floors behind the scenes. You do custodial work in your church. You, you're a servant in the shadows. Nobody's going to pat you on the back for it. You good? You all right with that? Pastor, you preach that sermon. You feel like it was the best sermon. You feel like you really, really did a great job. You feel like you were faithful to the text. Afterwards, nobody says a word about it. In fact, you get like three complaints after the, 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 the uh, service ends. You know, three complaints about this, that, and the other, right? Just silly stuff. You okay? You okay going home knowing I was faithful? I, I believe I was faithful. I believe I did that to your glory, Lord. Be glorified. Bear fruit. Even if I never even see that fruit this side of eternity. You okay with that? And how do we respond to criticism? Sorry, I know that I've had a few tea breaks here. How do we respond to criticism? I mean, that is a huge, huge litmus test for, for pride and humility. If you find yourself constantly defensive when you are criticized, then it shows you got some layers of the onion to deal with when it comes to, to pride. Now, understanding that we hate pride as believers, understanding that it's an abomination to the Lord, understanding that he hates it, understanding that it is as divination to him. How do we fight pride and how do we get humility? So let me read from the book of James, chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, here is where we really see James telling us how to fight our pride. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, that is not a verse saying, go around and be sad all the time. right? Just go. Christians should just be the gloomiest people on earth. Absolutely not. We should be the most joyful people on earth. But I do think that what James is saying is that if you recognize that you are proud then you need to submit yourself to God and you need to mourn and weep over your sin. You need to draw near to him in lowliness. Don't be laughing about your sin. Don't be laughing about much until you deal with the gross pride, the stinking, festering pride that has been revealed in your heart and in your soul. Like you got to deal with that. And so let your joy be turned to gloom as you deal with it. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Mourn this sin. Weep over this sin. Humble yourselves before the Lord, he says in James 4.10, and he will exalt you. And so this is how we fight our pride. It is submitting ourselves to God. It's what Adam and Eve did not do in the garden, right? It's submitting ourselves to God. It is resisting the serpent as he comes and he lies to us. Did God really say 
he just doesn't want you to be happy. He just doesn't want you to have what he has. He just doesn't want you to be like him. Are you, are you really going to die? Sin really going to kill you? Is there really judgment? Right? You've got to resist him and his lies. And the promise is that when we resist the devil, and he will flee from us. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Right? The, those who dwell in the secret place abide in the shadow of the Almighty. You dwell in the secret place, you're going to be walking in his shadow. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Humble yourself before the Lord, and ultimately, he will exalt you. We have, by the way, the example that we need in Jesus himself. Paul says in Philippians 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, that's that's easier said than done, right? I mean, okay, I don't want to be selfish. I don't want to do anything out of selfishness. I want to be humble. I want to count other people more important than me. I don't want to just be thinking about what I want, my agenda, you know, my priorities. I want to be thinking about the interests of other people's. Uh, well, how do I do this? Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in who? Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Thomas Watson's Body of Divinity, he talks uh, a bit about this, and he's talking about Jesus and his humility. And he says, He was born in an inn. And a manger was his cradle, the cobwebs his curtain, the beasts his companions. He descended of poor parents. One would have thought if Christ would have come into the world, he would have made choice of some queen or personage of honor to have descended from, but he comes of mean, obscure parents. Mean, uh, not meaning that like Joseph and Mary are mean people. Uh, but but talking about that they're just, just average people living in anonymity. For that they were poor appears by their offering. And, and mean would also uh, reflect like their level of income, like they, they didn't have much. Um, he was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He lay in the manger that we might lie in paradise. Oh, holy humility, you made the Son of God descend into the womb of the virgin Mary keeps going. He says, he stripped himself of the robes of glory and covered himself with the rags of our humanity. If Solomon wondered that God should dwell in the temple, which was enriched and hung with gold, how may we wonder that God should dwell in man's weak and frail nature? So we look to Christ. We look to the fact that he not only took our flesh, Watson says, but took it when it was at the worst, under disgrace, as if a servant should wear a nobleman's clothing when he is impeached of high treason. So we look to Christ, we look to his humility, and then we see what Paul says. So he dies on the cross, 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so there was humiliation before there was exaltation for the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would we think this would be different for our lives? And so we must humble ourselves. We must humble ourselves if we are the people of God, trusting that whether it be, there, there are times in which God will let us taste the, you know, the, the mountaintop a bit here in this life, we would say, but, but we're, we're aiming for, for something beyond right moments of, of glory here in this life. We are aiming for an eternity of glory, for unceasing glory in the ages to come. So humiliation now, right? Humble yourselves now. Submit yourselves to God, draw near to him, and then you will be in his presence forever as his people, and we will share in the inheritance of the Son of God who rules the nations with a rod of iron. This life is so short. This is a vapor. So let us be humble knowing that we will be exalted to glory for all of eternity. For when we read uh, Revelation 21 and Revelation 22, and it's talking about the bride of Christ, the bride city of the New Jerusalem. She has the glory of God. She has the glory of God, and she is in his beautiful presence forever, reflecting his beauty in all these different ways that are described in that text. So another thing I wanted to share from Watson, this super practical here, uh, same section of Body of Divinity talking about the humiliation of Christ. So I, I want to go through this because I think that this is something you can remember every single day, that, that every single day you can take Watson's advice here, remember these four things when pride kind of swells up in you and you're saying, well, what, what does it look like for me to submit myself to God, resist the devil, draw near to him, weep over my sin? How do I get into that mindset? I think these four things to remember from Watson are, are really, really good. Uh, first of all, he says, if we look juxtanos, which means about us, then that's going to humble us. So look around you, and what you'll see is other Christians outshining you in gifts and graces like the sun outshines the lesser planets. You, you start getting a little prideful. You start fanning out those peacock feathers a little bit. Stop yourself and look around you. You know, when I, I start to feel real good about how I preach, I can go listen to some of the other brothers in our pillar network here locally in Hampton Roads and just be like, wow, those guys are just so much better at me than expositing the word. Listen to the grip they have in the original languages that I don't have. I can go and listen to, like, Stephen Lawson is one of my favorite expositors. Uh, he's on my Mount Rushmore preachers. Go just listen to a few Lawson sermons and I'll go, yeah, I'm not that good at this. <laughs> not, not like Lawson. Or just look around your local church. Look around your local church and look at the people who never complain and serve their hearts out, admire their godliness, and realize you got a long way to go, right? So that's juxtanos. Look intranos, he says, meaning within yourself, which is not something we often say as Christians, but I think what he means there is self-examination. He's not talking about existentialism. So... When you look within yourself, he says, you see your sins represented to you in the glass of conscience, in the mirror of your conscience. 
You look within yourself, you see your lust, you see your envy, you see your passion, and your sins are like vermin. Like the, the sort of stuff you call the exterminator into your house for, like rats and roaches crawling around in your heart. So when you start feeling real good about yourself, just stop and really take stock of your holiness. Really take stock of the sin God's forgiven you of, the sin that God is currently working on you about when it comes to your sanctification, and then just start to think about all the stuff that he hasn't even dealt with you uh, on yet, right? Think about sins of omission you're not even aware of, like, like ways that you're probably dishonoring him that you're just too obtuse to even recognize, and how merciful he is to you in that. And that ought to stop you in the tracks of pride. Put those peacock feathers away and say, I, I'm a sinner, sinner saved by grace. The only merit I have is that which comes from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we want to look juxtanos about us, intranos within us. We want to look infranos below us. And I love this. He says, look down at the dirt that God made Adam from and know that's where you came from, and recognize that the dirt is what? The dirt is the son of nothing. He says, what is Adam but the son of dust, and what is the dust, Watson says, but the son of nothing? You're the son of nothing. How, how great do you think you are? You're made from the dirt. God made you from the dirt. Give him the glory. Don't give the glory to yourself. So, Juxtanos, intranos, infranos. So we want to look about us, within us, below us, and then most importantly, supranos. We want to look above us. We want to look above us because when you look up, who do you see? You see Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who died for your sin, exalted after his humiliation on the cross. You see the Lord God, right? The one who resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. The proud man, Watson says, is the mark which God shoots at. He never misses the mark. Look at the greatness of God and look at God's feelings toward pride and repent. Turn from your sin and once again trust in Christ to forgive you. He is just and faithful to forgive our sin, including the sin of pride. It's a daily battle. I believe our fight with pride is going to be a daily battle all the way to the grave. But be encouraged. When you submit yourself to God, you draw, to near him, uh, draw near to him, he will draw near to you. The devil will flee. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to joy and your joy to gloom. Or your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. After talking about all that pride and humility, it's probably good time to ask, how's your soul doing? Maybe you've listened to this and you've recognized that you have a lot of pride that is just swimming around in you right now as we speak that needs to be dealt with. Go get alone with the Lord and deal with it. And if you need to talk to a pastor, reach out to us at connect at seafordbaptist.com. We would love to help you along or connect you to a pastor in your area who can help you along. I want to ask you also, how is God's grace at work in your life? How would you like to see his grace at work in your life? If you consider these things, and again, you need to talk to a pastor, please reach out to us. It's been great to have another week with you. Great to have another episode. We have some good stuff coming up soon. I really do want to get some guests on, and I have wrapped up my prep work for our Revelation series here in our church. We've got two sermons left to preach in that series, but both are finished. 
Praise the Lord, they are finished. I've loved Revelation, but I was ready to finish this up. I'll be changing my uh, teaching approach on Wednesday nights a little bit. Still be teaching, but won't be doing two expository series at a time. I just, I can't do it the way I, I could in my late 20s and early 30s. And I actually don't think that's because I don't have the wherewithal for it. I think it's because I care more about the the actual work of, of expositing the text more than I did. And I've learned more about how to do it. And so the more time I want to put into the sermons, the less time I have to actually be preaching multiple expository series at once. So Revelation's wrapping up. And with that, I hope I have the more time to get more guests onto the podcast. Um, and I know one guest we're going to have soon is Pastor Ben Little, the worship pastor here at Seaford Baptist. He and I are going to be talking through Pilgrim's Progress throughout the year. We'll do the first section of it coming up here shortly. So with all that said, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll be back next week. Until then, keep living the Pilgrim life. <music>